This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the new year is kicking off with some interesting new tunes coming from states previously averse to expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Well, Mark, that is something that a number of guests on the show predicted would happen. Currently, 25 states and the District of Columbia have expanded their Medicaid programs to include those people who live at 138% below the poverty line. Many of the states that held out, largely in the South and the Midwest, we think did so for political reasons, but perhaps economic reasons will trump. Well, there are states like Missouri, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Utah that are considering expanding Medicaid in 2014 or beyond. And in Virginia, where a new governor has been sworn in, there's pressure mounting from the hospital and business communities to expand Medicaid. Some 400,000 low-income Virginians without coverage and a lot of money on the table for hospitals and healthcare companies. And the pressure will continue to mount from the healthcare community, Mark, because it's simple economics. In Kansas, hospital administrators are joining forces to apply pressure on Governor Brownback in that state to reconsider his refusal to expand Medicaid coverage. For many of these small to mid-sized groups and hospitals, it can mean the difference between finishing the year in the black or with a deficit. Our guest today has a unique insight into executing health policy, both at the state and federal level. Michael Levitt is the former Secretary of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush, and before that, a three-term governor of the state of Utah. Governor Levitt now runs a leading health consulting firm that helps public and private entities respond to the changes in the healthcare industry, many of them specifically due to the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. We'll hear from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, on statements made in the public domain about health policy. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Governor Levitt in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. CGI's out, Accenture's in. The company behind the troubled rollout of the federal health exchange, healthcare.gov, is being replaced in 2014 with Accenture, the company behind the largely successful Covered California, the exchange covering the state of California, where more than 400,000 residents have managed to gain health insurance coverage online since that rollout began October 1st. Accenture, though, is not without critics. There are continued glitches for customers attempting to sign up in California. The contract to manage healthcare.gov for the coming year is $45 million. Accenture's had billions of dollars and federal contracts in the past not related to health care. Another sector still having trouble with those online exchanges, the Hispanic market. Analysts are still seeing numerous problems with Hispanic users being able to log on successfully in the Spanish language health care site. Even more perplexing and disturbing is the high percentage of uninsured Americans who don't know there are tax credits they can qualify for that would subsidize their purchase of health insurance. Analysts say the nonstop coverage of the flawed rollout of healthcare.gov had the effect of blocking messaging about who benefits from the law. Almost 70 percent of uninsured Americans don't know about the tax credits, as well as other assistance that would make coverage more affordable for them. That partially explains why 68 percent of uninsured Americans have yet to visit healthcare.gov. 
Paid sick leave may be the luxury of the well-employed, but it's now the law of the land, at least in certain parts of the country. Measures are in effect in places like Seattle, San Francisco. They're going into effect in New York City and Jersey City. Workers have a system in place where they can earn sick time. A recent study estimated making just two days of paid sick leave available to workers would reduce flu co-infection by 40 percent. Business organizations, however, argue the measures put undue pressure on them to increase payroll expenditures and could impact their ability to do things such as give raises and hire new people. Tilling more fertile ground for the growing medical marijuana trend, New York's Governor Cuomo stated his intentions to examine regulations that would allow the use of medical marijuana for the terminally ill in New York and others with few treatment options. The measure would allow a test run in 20 selected hospitals. Nearly two dozen states have laws allowing the use of marijuana for medical purposes. And from medical marijuana to Vaporiums, six e-cigarette bars have opened up in Manhattan, providing users with a variety of flavors and nicotine vapor inhaling experiences to ostensibly help them wean off cigarettes. With over 100 flavors to choose from at one particular location, folks are lining up for things like blueberry creme brulee. The problem is the New York City Council passed a ban prohibiting the use of e-cigarettes wherever smoking is banned, which is pretty much every public place in New York. Health officials are still concerned about the effect of prolonged exposure to the nicotine vapors. I'm Ariano here with these healthcare headlines. speaking today with Governor Michael Levitt, founder and chairman of Levitt Partners, a leading health industry consulting firm. He's the former three-term governor of the state of Utah from 1993 to 2003 and is the former secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush, during which time he oversaw the expansion of Medicare Part D. Before that, Governor Levitt served as the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. He's the former chairman of the National Governors Association and is author of the new book, Finding Allies building alliances. Governor Levitt, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. No, thank you. Governor, uh, one of your more notable achievements during your tenure as the uh, U.S. Secretary of HHS was the development and rollout of the Medicare Part D program in 2006, which ultimately brought cheaper prescriptions to 48 million American seniors on Medicare. And it certainly had its startup challenges, but your philosophy was, let's get the people the drugs they need and we'll work out the technical problems later. We're looking at a number of challenges with the rollout of the Affordable Care Act right now. And considering your unique perspective, um, what lessons learned or advice do you have that might be applied to the leadership who's rolling out the Affordable Care Act? I think there are many lessons, uh, some that can be learned retrospectively and some that can be uh, applied by this administration going forward. The, The first is that Uh, preparation is ultimately what allows administrations and for that matter, any organization to avoid the kind of problem that uh, this administration has encountered. Uh, The roots of this can go back uh, almost two years ago to a series of mistakes that I believe uh, were made. And the first is that they deferred regulation making. In in many cases, it it appeared to be for uh, political purposes. They were in the midst of 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 a reelection uh, they were going to have to make hard choices, and they decided to defer those choices until after the election, and it threw the whole process behind. I think the second uh, mistake was that putting someone in charge of the whole process 
and recognizing that there are certain competencies that don't always inherently lie in government. In this case, uh, the, the decision not to have an integration contractor with all of the systems and to try to do that in-house uh, proved to be a problem. The third, I think, is that you have to anticipate that there's going to be this kind of problem and that the importance of having metrics that can both allow you to have situational awareness and be able to determine if you're making progress. I believe the administration lacked those metrics and consequently everything just looked dark and it was difficult to demonstrate uh, progress. But those are three that I think uh, this administration uh, can learn. Now, going forward, uh, I think the important thing, one thing the administration did do well is that when the problems existed, they took ownership of them Mm -hmm. and uh, demonstrated a a willingness to fix it. And I think, again, pointing to metrics allowed that. You know, governors, we uh, look back to when the law was first signed into being. I'm, I'm not sure we all anticipated that the law might look so different depending on which state you live in. But you've said in the past that one of the necessary elements to the success of health policy reform was that states had to retain their autonomy and how they approached it. So we're seeing, uh, in fact, a pretty wide array of approaches in how states have chosen to comply with the Affordable Care Act from the decisions about expansion or not expansion of Medicaid uh, to explorations of single-payer systems, state exchanges, federal exchanges, et cetera. Maybe you could describe for us, from your perspective, what are the the really notable differences uh, between states? From your perspective as a former federal administrator, a governor, and now a health consultant, as you look around the national scene? We first ought to acknowledge the presence of and effect of um, politics uh, on this process. Uh, the original design of the Affordable Care Act was uh, on exchanges for each state to make a decision as to whether or not they wanted to have a state exchange or a federal uh, exchange. Many states who would typically uh, opt for uh, some kind of state performance objected so to the law that they just concluded that on on the basis of politics, uh, they weren't going to be anywhere around this. I do think it has been demonstrated that those who chose to implement at the state level had better outcomes for the most part than those who relied upon the federal government. And I think it's also safe to say that um, one of the dilemmas that the federal government faced was that they were somewhat overrun uh, by the number of places that they had to respond to. And I don't think that was anticipated in the early design of the the law. There are are differences. Uh, One is that uh, states are of a size, typically, that's where you can manage. The second, there's often not the intense politics that plays out. Uh, And frankly, I just think states are better equipped and have traditionally been better equipped uh, to deliver uh, in their jurisdiction as opposed to the federal government who's having to deal with different kinds of problems that naturally exist in 50 different jurisdictions. Governor, you're uh, releasing a report cracking the code on health care costs from the commission you co-chaired with uh, former Governor Bill Ritter, the, the State Health Care Cost Containment Commission, which was tasked with producing a range of policy options that can be tailored to meet the needs and cultures of different states. Tell us a little bit about the report and also why you view states as sort of incubators for change and what are you seeing out there in terms of controlling costs that uh, are exciting? I think the sub-theme of the report uh, would be states can have more impact than you think. Uh, when you begin to 
analyze all of the levers that, that states hold to impact health costs. There is no such thing as a national health care system or a national health care market. There are regional markets, and the country is made up of a network of regional markets. And if you're sitting in Washington and you're having to decide uh, how best to function in 50 different, well, actually in 316, we used to, we, we have divided the country into 316, what's known as hospital referral regions. Every one of those are different. And, and so Washington trying to manage healthcare costs in 316 different places where they're not familiar with them is difficult, but a state can do that. And a governor, a governor has not just the capacity to run the, the levers of state government, has a bully pulpit. And mm-hmm. so the report calls on governors to step up and be a big force in shaping health care costs in their state. And uh, it encourages governors to be the leader, uh, to establish benchmarks uh, of, of cost containment and begin to use some of the levers, the regulation of insurance, the regulation of, 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 uh, of medicine, the capacity to create markets. Uh, the ability to direct state employees' uh, plans, which are often among the largest employee, employers, the ability to bring um, uh, information together. All of those things are tools that can re- reside at a state. And this report details a number of things that governors can do to take charge of this problem within their own states. Well, Governor, one of those forces that you speak of uh, at the level of states is really the force of innovation uh, that governors and legislatures and and the businesses within that state can bring to bear. And certainly the accountable care organizations have gotten a lot of attention, uh, certainly uh, in the Affordable Care Act, but really playing out on the ground around the country and in states. And whether it's accountable care organizations or patient-centered medical homes, there's a common theme about improving care coordination, better patient outcomes, and controlling costs uh, while providing better care. Where, where do you see the real magic in these scenarios around these new delivery systems for care? Is it the payment incentives, the range of services that patients get? What's what's the real game changer in some of these innovations from your perspective? I think when you boil all of this, it really focuses on two major changes. The first is a major shift in who bears risk, and the second is the basis on which we compensate for services, moving away from a fee-for-service basis uh, more toward a risk-based payment or a population help where a provider or group of providers are paid a a specific sum of money and then required to uh, compete in the marketplace based on their ability to provide the best care for that amount of money. Those two changes, uh, big shift in risk moving from just insurance companies bearing risk to providers actually accepting risk and making decisions based on those assumptions, those are the two big changes. And our firm tracks these accountable care organizations and have identified well over 600 of them now, some of which are providers that are some of which are um, government-inspired accountable care organizations and others coming from the commercial marketplace. But we're beginning to see, we, we think there's somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 million lives now managed that way. And it, 
it's uh, I think we're in a period right now where people are just trying to see if this works or not. And if it uh, if it does, then I think you can buckle your chin strap. We're going to see the pace of change pick up. We're speaking today with Governor Michael Levitt, former secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush and former three term governor of Utah. Governor Levitt is the author of a new book, Finding Allies and Building Alliances, in which he promotes a collaboration to achieve meaningful change in public policy. Uh, governor, sounds like a good prescription for a many of the ales in Washington, uh, but we're not seeing a lot of collaboration in D.C. right now. And you, you say that such divisiveness is a great enemy of governmental achievement. And you note that the recent government shutdown and the ongoing sequester have been so damaging to the public trust in the integrity of the federal government. And what are your thoughts on how we get past the political grandstanding? And based on your own experience of compromise and diplomacy, uh, what are some good solutions out there for people? Well, I believe that one of the reasons that government has become so mired in, in gridlock is that I think the federal government is trying to do too much. Uh, we talked earlier about the role of states, and I think it goes back to this report. There's a level at which problems can be solved, and when you're trying to do it all in one place in Washington, D.C., first of all, the politics becomes so bitter, uh, and it becomes so uh, infested with special interests that actually just getting down to the, the root of problem solving is difficult. That happens better in, it's in state governments, and it happens better in, in local governments. And so to the degree that there is a government necessary, the, the construct of having problems solved at a more local level always produces a more cooperative outcome. And many of these problems, in fact, I would say most of these problems, cannot be solved by any one person or any one organization. They require collaborative solutions where people get together. The book is really a a collection of experiences and lessons that uh, I and other people have learned from solving problems that way and that we can get better at it. But the first rule is you've got to be in in a position where people are willing to work collaboratively. And in many respects, the federal government was just set up around checks and balances of tension. So I, I think the first rule is move the problem to a level where it can most be or best be solved many times that isn't the federal government. Well, Governor, I, I'd like to ask you about uh, one thing that I think I'm afraid is going to have to be solved at the federal level and with collaboration. And you recently published an op-ed piece in which you really spoke to uh, the need for the overhaul of the Medicare reimbursement formula, the so-called SGR or Sustainable Growth Rate Formula. But the sustainable growth rate formula governs how practices that serve Medicare patients are paid. Um, You say the time is right fiscally and from a policy standpoint to fix this uh, system that really has caused so much distress for providers across the country. And it appears there might be some consensus and willingness to collaborate in Washington now on fixing the SGR problem. What's the forecast for repeal and replacement of the Medicare reimbursement formula? What's what's likely to happen there? And, And maybe share with our listeners, why is it so important that we get this done? This is a somewhat arcane uh, problem to many people, but it's a serious one. And so let me describe what it is. Uh, When a a physician performs a service, uh, they are provided a fee. And that fee is determined by a bureaucratic process uh, in Washington where a fee is assigned to every service. And it's different in different areas, uh, which causes all kinds of problems. It can be twice as much in Florida as it is in Minnesota, which it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's, first of all, the, the root of the problem is it's based on a system that, that's artificially complex. The, the second part of this problem is that Congress could see that 
when people wanted to wake, uh, make more money, what they do is they just do more procedures. So they had no way of reeling that in. So they said, well, we'll just pay less for each procedure. And so they would just continue. They said, let's just every year we'll reduce the cost of those of what we pay for those procedures by five percent. Well, it, what happened was they just got more procedures. The lower the price, the more procedures they got. And and so they had artificially put into place that every year, five percent roughly would come off of these procedures. But then at the end of the year they would say, that's not going to work because people are going to either do more procedures or they're just going to drop out of Medicare and not treat people. And so they uh, would just go back and pay for that year the 5% that the law required them to drop. Well, over time, we've just dug this enormous hole uh, in the uh, amount of money that it would it will take to pay for that and it's just a crazy system and it needs to be fixed and the economics of this have come to the point that it's the cheapest to solve right now than it's been in a long time and it's not just plugging the hole economically it's fixing the system they need to fix it because it's never going to get any better. They've got to fix the system. Governor Levitt, you've uh, gone from governance to consulting in the healthcare intelligence business with your company, uh, Levitt Partners, utilizing strategies you learned while dealing with the intelligence communities, forecasting strategies and many uncertainties. And you say we're at an inflection point in healthcare in which the landscape seems to be changing daily and fraught with tremendous amount of unpredictability. So share with our listeners, if you would, what kind of changes you foresee ahead and how are you advising governments and businesses uh, to prepare for these changes in the healthcare industry, uh, not just with the Affordable Care Act, but with a vast array of uh, technological advances looming on the healthcare horizon? The first thing I believe it's important is for people to recognize how inevitable change is because it's not being driven by politics. It's being driven by economics. And it's not being driven by just U.S. economics. It's being driven by global economics. And that starts with the fact that no country can remain competitive on a global landscape if it's spending 20 or 22% of its entire gross domestic product on healthcare. And we're beginning to feel the impact on the competitiveness. So the first thing is to recognize that change is inevitable and it is moving toward us with a glacial certainty. It's change is happening. The, the second is to recognize that what we're beginning to see occur in marketplaces all over the country, healthcare marketplaces, is that we're moving from a system that has been essentially siloed or, or uncoordinated, where everyone's a general contractor, uh, to a situation where there will be general contractors and subcontractors. And, uh, and there's a big competition right now in the marketplaces to, to to conclude who will be the general contractor, if you will, in healthcare. Will it be hospitals? Will it be insurance companies? Will it be uh, uh, clinic uh, clinic operations? Or will there be others that will act as general contractor? Well, everyone wants to be the general contractor, and so there's a competition that's going on, and that it'll be different in in every market. And one of the conclusions you quickly come to is that no one of those health entities have all the competencies to, measure, to be able to, to deliver health care necessary. And so we're beginning to see lots of mergers and acquisitions and joint ventures 
as insurance companies begin to buy health care providers and mm-hmm. providers begin to create insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And so thinking of your place in this world as a health care provider, as being the way it was in the past, that's, a, that, that, that's, a, uh, that's not a likelihood. So we have to begin to think of new shapes and figure out where we fit in it if we're in the health business. We've been speaking today with Governor Michael Levitt, founder and chairman of Levitt Partners, a leading health industry consulting firm. He is the former three-term governor of the state of Utah and the former secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush. You can learn more about his work by going to levittpartners.com. Governor Levitt, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. My pleasure. Thank you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we've heard Republican lawmakers claim that 80 million to 90 million Americans with work-based insurance are going to lose their plans in 2014 because of the Affordable Care Act. But those millions of Americans aren't going to lose their insurance. The claim is based on health plans losing grandfathered status, which means the plans were exempted from some of the requirements of the law because they existed before the law was signed. The Obama administration in 2010 estimated that about half of all employer insurance plans would lose grandfathered status by the end of 2013. In fact, most workers were already on non-grandfathered plans in 2012, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's annual employer survey. Many workers may not have even noticed that plans had been modified and lost their grandfathered status. Employers change their plans frequently. Small group plans face more requirements once they are no longer grandfathered than large group plans. So workers at small businesses with up to 50 workers are more likely to feel the effects of losing that status. Some, in fact, could be sent to the exchanges by their employer. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has estimated that employer-based insurance would decline by a net $7 million in 2019 compared with what would have happened without the law. 11 million would lose an offer of insurance, 3 million would decide to get insurance from another source, and 7 million would gain insurance at work. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The U.S. boasts among the highest rates of teen births in the world's industrialized nations. And while those numbers have been declining in recent years, it's still a significant health issue in this country. According to a recent study, the decline in teen birth rates in this country can be attributed in part to the launch of the popular MTV show, 16 and Pregnant, and the subsequent Teen Mom. MTV launched the series in 2009, working in partnership with the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Un 
unplanned pregnancy to show the challenges and harsh realities of teen pregnancy and teen parenthood. Researchers at the University of Maryland and Wellesley College conducted an empirical study to determine what, if any, impact the shows had on the decline of teen pregnancy and birth. Wellesley College economist Philip Levine found that much of the decline in recent years is the result of the Great Recession, but that it didn't account for all of the decline. They decided to utilize Google Data Tracker and Twitter activity around the airing of the shows, which developed a loyal following and consistently high ratings since the show began in 2009. So they called the Nielsen rating data. We look to see people searching for things like, how do I get birth control? And it's, you know, it's remarkable how people respond to the show, do things like tweet and search about things that they're watching on TV as they're watching it and immediately following. So you see these enormous spikes in activity about 16 and pregnant the day the episode airs. You just see this huge spike in activity. And that also tends to correlate with people doing things like searching and tweeting about birth control. More interestingly were the social media conversations surrounding themes explored on the show loss of freedom, the fathers of the baby often removing themselves from the picture, themes that really drove the challenge of teen motherhood home to billions of young, vulnerable viewers. The important point about watching the show is that it really illustrates the life choices that these girls have made uh, and what outcomes it has on their lives in a way that a reality TV show can do that a public service announcement or a sex education teacher or some other form of communication can't really accomplish. And in that way, it can have a really meaningful impact on viewers. Based on the data they compiled, they determined the show led to a 5.7% drop in teen births from 2009 to 2012, a significant number in the relatively short period of time. The study, Media Influences on Social Outcomes, the Impact of MTV's 16 and Pregnant on Teen Childbearing, can be found in the National Bureau of Economic Research. MTV says this aligns with their goal of the show, which was to utilize their trusted media platform to reach a vulnerable sector of their audience and educate them about the potential hazards of risky behavior in a format they understood, reality TV. A media outlet utilizing airwaves to reveal the risk of teen pregnancy, thus creating a platform for dialogue for teens to address this potentially life-changing event, leading to a significant reduction in teen pregnancy. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.